the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Joining me today is the teaching pastor and elder of Peninsula Bible Church, Pastor Scott Grant. And Pastor Grant, great to have you with us today. Uh, Folks that may not be aware, listening to our conversation today, that the likes of J. Vernon McGee from Through the Bible Radio has been a frequent speaker in years past at PBC. The late Dr. John Walvard, who of course for many years was the head of Dallas Theological Seminary, a speaker there. And of course we would be amiss without reminding listeners, and certainly the, the folks that have got a bit of gray hair around the temple will remember the fabulous teaching ministry of Pastor Ray Stedman. And, and he in many respects, I think, put PBC on the map, although if you said that PBC is the house that Ray Stedman built, I think he would be the first to protest and say, Craig, he, I, I had nothing to do with it. It was simply and entirely all about Jesus. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I'm sure that's what Ray would say. And uh, I think uh, Ray started a great thing or was involved in starting a great thing with the Lord. But he also uh, really passed on to all of us, I think, a way of doing church that has served us well through the years. And the Lord has led us in powerful ways, I think, since Ray's day. The peninsula, of course, since his day has changed pretty dramatically. It was sort of the bedroom end of San Francisco in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And then, of course, tremendous change came about in the late 1970s into the 1980s. And suddenly the peninsula became home for Silicon Valley and and tremendous technological developments that continue to this very day. In your course of time, Pastor Grant, not only as a member of PBC, but certainly now on the pastoral staff there, as, as you've watched all of these changes uh, develop. How has ministry in that regard, how, how has the need of the people of the peninsula changed through all those years? Yeah, well, I think it really transformed into a, a, a place where work just became central to people's lives. So I think work has always been that, but uh, increasingly so, so that uh, people come here to work and work becomes central to their lives. So We've really, uh, I think, had to think about that and how do we minister to people who are uh, coming here thinking they're going to change the world and, and maybe that doesn't work out so well, uh, but uh, maybe what we have is uh, is the answer and the gospel, the things that really changes people's hearts. And and if you preach the gospel and share the word with people, then they can take the gospel and the word into the workplace and then uh, they can have a tremendous effect in the workplace as well. You know, it's curious because we've seen research done by organizations like uh, the Barna Group, uh, even George Gallup's polling organization, to look at the, the changing desires of people, the changing behaviors. We've seen, of course, a pretty significant decline in recent decades, probably over the last generation and a half, of things like church attendance. And while perhaps some of the behavior of individuals have changed, their core needs have not changed one iota, both in terms of the need to want to be a part of something. I think that that grassroots desire, that innate desire to to be a part of family, part of community. And then ultimately, I think that sense of while they might be challenged in trying to articulate it or define it, the need to have a connection with our Creator. And, and, And toward that end, of course, a ministry like PBC serves a very important function in not only helping people to better identify what their true needs are, but then ultimately discover fulfillment in all that. Yes, I think that's right. The, um, we, we emphasize preaching the Word of God, which centers on God, and I think there's a, a hunger in, in everyone's heart for, for God, whether they know it or not. And I think uh, if we preach well and teach well and disciple well, I think that... Uh, hunger is going to be addressed and 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 met and we find that uh, you know people you know find Christ they grow in Christ they share Christ and and then a community arises out of there too so people are 
uh, hungry for community and hungry for relationships. And uh, maybe they're too busy in some some cases, but they they recognize that need. And it's uh, it's really the, the the people, you know, more so than the pastors. I think the pastors can preach and teach and disciple, but we emphasize equipping the saints for the work of the ministry out of Ephesians four. And uh, so many of our people are just so great and so responsive and start ministries themselves and are, are such a blessing to so many. It's really exciting to see. So is what you're talking about, in a word, essentially true discipleship? In other words, some cases we see examples where Christianity seems to be almost a spectator sport, meaning you get dressed up, you go to church on Sunday, somebody in a suit gets up behind a podium, they give a nice message, I feel better about myself when I leave than when I came in, and then I go back to my day-to-day life. And for some people, that's how they define church or even define Christianity. But it seems, Pastor Grant, you're talking about something different, something deeper, something that has a greater sense of connectivity, not not only between ourselves and God himself, but, but also amongst ourselves. In other words, relationally, both on the vertical plane as well as on the horizontal plane. Yes, uh, we, I, think, I think you need both, and I think God wants both, right? And um, we, are, we really endeavor to disciple people, to come alongside people, and obviously, the the worship service on a Sunday morning serves a great and wonderful purpose. But one of those purposes also is to gather people and to call them into a deeper relationship with God in a smaller setting. Uh, and we have multiple smaller settings throughout the church. And then, uh, and then the idea also is to send them out because uh, they're only sort of with us for a little bit. But we want to send them out to their families, to their communities, to their workplaces, where they can follow Jesus and wherever Jesus calls them. Give us a little bit of the uh, the background of your own personal journey. I, I know that you are a lifelong Bay Area native, and and one time worked. Uh, can we use the dirty word journalist? Although I don't think it's a dirty word. It might be in the minds of some, but but certainly not in my eyes. Tell us a bit about your own faith journey. I came to Christ uh, at the age of uh, fifteen, sixteen, as a junior in high school. Um, I was um, introduced to a high school youth group and uh, found Jesus there, and. Uh, and began following him. I grew up uh, here on the peninsula. I actually grew up in Mountain View. And uh, I I had my heart set on being a journalist uh, from a very early age, and uh, that's what I did. I majored in journalism. I went to work for newspapers in the Bay Area. The last stop I had was at the Contra Costa Times as an editor. I think it's now called the East Bay Times. And um, and that was mostly a, just a really fun, exciting journey to be a journalist and to follow Jesus in the in the newsroom. And um, but I got involved in uh, in uh, teaching Bible studies at a church I was at, and and um, uh, to high school students and college students. And uh, one thing led to another, and I think the Lord pushed me out of the newsroom and ultimately pushed me into the pulpit. And I've uh, I, I left the Bay Area. I, I grew up here, but I left the Bay Area. I was away for several years and somehow ended up back here. And uh, then I began becoming a began as a pastor at PBC. That was 28 years ago. And so I came back here and uh, been serving as a pastor ever since at uh, at PBC. And I keep quoting this uh, country western song: "Look how far I've had to come to get back where I started from." But I think my experience as a journalist is uh, one of the things that the Lord prepared me for to be a pastor, and I think in the unique way that he prepared me to be the kind of pastor he wanted me to be, because I'm always asking what the story is, and uh, what the, what's the story in the scriptures, and what's the story in people's lives, what's the story of the world, and um, and how do we tell the story, how do we tell the biblical story, uh, and uh, the con- being conversant with words and teaching and so forth, I think um, that was... Um, you know, set the stage for me. Now, I will say this, that I I think because I, I have this experience in the working world as a journalist, that gives me a perspective, maybe, to be able to teach and to speak uh, from the perspective of a journalist and the perspective of someone in the workplace. And uh, I think that's uh, that has been a helpful thing uh, for me uh, over the years to, uh, and, and also to, to see that when I left the newsroom for the pulpit, I did not think, I went kicking and screaming at first, to be honest with you, because to give up a position of faith in the newsroom, I thought that was a pretty big thing. That was a pretty important place for me to occupy. The Lord had to make it pretty clear to me that he wanted to move me to the pulpit, so to speak. But I didn't think that the pulpit was a more spiritual place than the newsroom. 
Because if we're followers of Jesus, we need to bring the presence of Jesus everywhere we go, whether you're, um, you know, whether you work in an Apple or Facebook or whether you're working as a pastor at Peninsula Bible Church. So essentially what you're saying is you, you went from reporting about the bad news to proclaiming the good news, which I love. And I like, too, your perspective, and I think it's important for all of us to be mindful of that sense of growing where we're planted, and that every time we step out our front door in the morning, wherever our destination might be, heading off to school, heading off to work, going to the church to prepare sermon notes for the Sunday sermon, that we will come in contact with people all along the way, and especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, where literally the mission field is outside of our front door. We have the opportunity to touch the lives of people from every continent, every tribe, every tongue. It's all right here. This is a uh, perhaps one of the most fascinating demographic conglomerates um, here in the San Francisco Bay Area, perhaps uh, un, un, unrivaled by any other place, certainly on the planet that I know of, and I've been to 35, 37-something countries, I've never seen one area that looks quite as dynamic and diversified as the San Francisco Bay Area. And that really then affords us an opportunity to to have a tremendous impact in all these lives that we touch every single day. So the work is not just from the pulpit, as you point out, Pastor Grant. It really, the work takes place wherever the workplace might be. That's right. And um, when I uh, when I came back here, I grew up, uh, you know, in the 1960s and 70s uh, here on the peninsula. And um, when I, I went away, I came back and I was in a uh, I was in a cafe in Mountain View, and I heard four different languages being spoken. I had the sense that I wanted to go someplace new, but when I rec- when I came back, I thought I was here for just a little bit. I recognized this is someplace new. That I didn't have to go to the world because the world has come here, and so that's uh, made it to made it a very exciting place. Our our church, by the way, is a multi generational, multi ethnic community, which makes it a very exciting place to uh, to serve. And also, I think what the one of the things the Lord has also done is uh, at PBC is create some great opportunities for us to serve people who may be over, overlooked a little bit. So we have a thriving recovery ministry, people getting off drugs and alcohol, and uh, we have uh, multiple multiple ministries to uh, people who are unhoused as well. So the Lord's really blessed us in that in that way. And a lot of these stuff, by the way, has come up from people who are part of our congregation and not part of the official official leadership. And they've uh, really inspired us to uh, create these ministries and start these ministries. So the church, in that sense, is a reflection of the community and addressing the community's needs. And I love that because, you know, the, the gospel is not just for one one narrow group. It's it's for Jew and Gentile, right? And all across the board. And I think it's wonderful that the church has had a almost, um, how should we say, uh, organic way in which some of these ministries that you point out, Pastor Grant, have developed. Just about every church has a ministry to children and to young people in the collegiate group. But then folks that go to the PBC website at pbc.org, you'll recognize, as Pastor Grant just alluded to a moment ago, there's literally something for everybody. And, and I bet if you come there and say, ah, you forgot this one group, uh, you might be able to make a good argument that th- there's time to start something new and, and get involved, pick, pick up the, the reins of that and, and lead, lead into a whole new ministry opportunity. Yeah, that's right. We just had a newcomer's uh, lunch, which was really, I think we had about 60 or so people come to it. And somebody asked about mission trips and those kinds of things. And I said, well, we, we go on an annual trip to um, to India, but that was originally started by somebody who wasn't an elder or pastor here. And they had this idea. And we've been going to India, I think, for 20 years now or something like that. And I, and, uh, I said to her, I said, you could start one. You know, you could, you could start a, a mission trip uh, and uh, come to us and we'll see what we can do to make that happen. For folks that have just tuned in, we're visiting today with Scott Grant. He's the teaching pastor and elder at Peninsula Bible Church. Information, again, available on the web at pbc.org. That's pbc.org. They have both in-person and live stream services every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. And again, details available on the web at pbc.org. 
Pastor, I'm curious from your perspective, give me the, uh, what do they call it, the 30-second elevator pitch, uh, meaning you, you run into somebody in the elevator, you're going to ride down a couple of floors, you got 30 seconds, and uh, they say to you, oh, so you're a pastor at a church, well, tell me about your church. Give us that thumbnail sketch, if you would, for folks that are new to the Bay Area, perhaps looking for a new church home, they've heard our discussion today and say, gee, I, I like what that guy's got to say. I'm curious what PBC is all about. Well, I would say front and center is following Jesus. You can look at our website and we say following Jesus in the Silicon Valley. So the Lord's placed us here in the Silicon Valley, this unique place in the world, and we are trying to follow Jesus in the Silicon Valley. How do we do that? Um, A a central part of that for us is we preach the word of God. We believe in the scriptures. We believe they're from God. We believe they are just outstanding for building people up and bringing people to Christ. Uh, We believe in the new covenant, which is uh, dependence on the spirit for the presentation of Christ from the word of God. We believe in equipping the saints. That means everybody for the work of the ministry and that you can get involved and, um, and, and really be a real uh, person of consequence in the church and in the community. And we also believe in shared leadership so that we actually don't have a lead pastor or senior pastor or elder led church. So we really believe in relationships uh, and uh, so we're we're all about following Jesus and helping people to follow Jesus. Sounds like it looks like a, a lot of the reflection of the first century church, doesn't it? Well, yeah, we're 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 trying to get get it from the scriptures and trying to do the best we can to figure out what the scriptures say and to, and to follow Jesus according to what the what the scriptures tell us. As you take a step back for a moment and you look at the community that you serve, the Greater Peninsula both through the eyes of a believer, somebody that is in a, a, a pastoral teaching role, as well as a journalist. What do you see as the greatest pressing need at the moment? And how can and should we as the church be meeting or addressing that need? Well, I think probably the biggest challenge in in this area, and you've pointed this out, is it's a very secular area, right? And so uh, doing doing church here is going to be different from a lot of other uh, parts of the country. And um, so I, I think teaching the Word of God is just still going to be central no matter what the thing is, no matter what's going on. Uh, and, and maybe you need to think about, okay, how does the Word of God then address the particular needs of this particular place? And, uh, I, you know, as I said earlier, we have this recovery ministry, and sometimes, you know, those are the overlooked folks and the homeless folks or the unhoused folks are sometimes the overlooked folks. But oftentimes what we find is they're the ones who are are, are, are hungriest in terms of they recognize their need maybe better than some of the rest of us. And and so uh, that's one of the ways that we've been able to be uh, successful with the gospel is to, with the recovery ministry and the uh, and the folks who are unhoused. You know, the irony is uh, here in a region like the peninsula, we are so enormously blessed to the point of of being mega blessed in the amount of abundance. I mean, yes, we live in the most probably expensive part of the entire state, let alone the entire country, arguably so. Uh, And yet it's sometimes in in the midst of all of that uh, abundance and success for mankind to recognize his real, true sort of baseline depravity. And, uh, you know, it's amazing how the bigger challenges we face in life, be it a health crisis, maybe it's a heart attack, maybe it's a cancer diagnosis, or the loss of a job that leads to the inability to pay a mortgage, that leads to losing a home and suddenly being on the streets. These kinds of life events, I think, that oftentimes will, will serve a greater purpose toward helping us to recognize that in the end, it's really only God and our families that count, and that all of the blessings in the world from a material standpoint don't provide peace, they don't provide satisfaction. Ask any multimillionaire what his greatest need is, and he'll undoubtedly tell you more money, when in fact that's just a cover-up or an excuse in, in not fully recognizing the true need, and that is what God recognized. Providing Christ is a means by which we might be forgiven, be reconciled unto him to walk in relationship with our creator 
And if we can communicate that message in any fashion and form, you know, all things to all men that I might win some, as Paul said, I think that's uh, that's certainly job number one. And, um, you know, you go where they're hungry. And if where the greatest hunger is happens to be on the street corner and the guy that's cowering in the uh, in the doorway that uh, needs uh, needs a place to sleep in the next meal, uh, there's where I believe we should take the gospel, as well as, of course, to, to the, the ivory towers. That's right. Yeah, there, there's, and everybody sort of connects with a hunger of some sort, even the most successful people. And, um, and, and so we, we, we do our best to try to, to try and say that hey, whatever it is you think that's doing it for you, it's, it's not doing it for you. And, um, and, and maybe around here, we've, we have bowed down before the altar of the almighty silicon chip. And maybe the silicon chip is just not, is just not the God we want it to be. And I think eventually people will recognize that and then they'll search elsewhere. And, uh, really the place to search is, uh, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. You look, you look at some of the events on wall street that have a ripple effect all the way from wall street to a page mill road in Palo Alto and, and wonder if God's not attempting to get our attention that indeed bowing at that altar of the, the Silicon chip, as you say, is uh, wrought with not only lots of problems, but, but in the end, extreme disappointment. Well, as we say, if you're new to the San Francisco Bay Area or looking for a new church home, we invite you to check out more about the uh, the ministry and uh, the community taking place at Peninsula Bible Church. They're located at 3505 Middlefield Road in Palo Alto, and you can call them to get information at area code 650-494-3840, or easier still, see them on the web at pbc.org. That's PBC for Peninsula Bible Church pbc.org. In-person and live stream services held every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Folks new to the Bay Area looking for a new church home, undoubtedly as we move into the holiday season, there's going to be lots of exciting things going on at PBC. I think there is something. I just don't have the date for it. Well, with that, we can drive folks to the website to get more information. And certainly, again, you're invited to go to pbc.org. That's pbc.org. As we say, don't forget that they have live and in-person services every Sunday morning at 9 and again at 11 a.m. And so if you're looking for a new church home, you're always welcome at Peninsula Bible Church online at pbc.org. Pastor Scott Grant, we appreciate so much spending some time with you today. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. My name is Scott Grant. You may not have seen me around for a couple months because I've been on sabbatical. I uh, took some time off for two months with um, a little bit with my wife, a little bit with my family, a little bit by myself, a lot of time with the Lord. I I did a little bit of everything. I studied uh, a few passages. I prayed a lot. I reflected. I played a little golf. I did a little fishing. Uh, I did just about a little bit of everything, but now I am tanned, toned, rested, and I'm back. And I can see a few faces out there that I don't recognize that you maybe have come in the last couple of months, so it's good to see you. And who is this Cormac guy, anyway? This, uh, yeah, this, uh, we got a new worship pastor. I mean, this is awesome. And if you haven't met the worship pastor's wife, Jasmine, she is awesome. I wouldn't even say she's a little more awesome than Carmack. Uh, I got to know both of them before I left. And, I, you know, my stamp of approval, you know, it's a hearty stamp of approval, I should say. It's great to have both of you with us. It's really just awesome. It's awesome to worship with you, too, Cormac. I really enjoyed that this morning. Uh, so I hear you're in the book of Exodus. Is that right? The book of Exodus, right? Okay, so I guess I better come up with something this morning. <laughs> so Exodus is a, is a personally meaningful book to me. Um, it's, uh, I identify with Moses. Uh, first of all, Moses grew up in Egypt. He went away to the wilderness for 40 years, and then he came back. I grew up on the peninsula. I went away for not 40 years, but sometime I lived in many different places, and some of those places might even qualify as the wilderness, And then I came back. And then uh, Moses uh, has to confront his fears. And when I first studied the book of Exodus, I identified with Moses in my own fears. And so Moses helped me confront my fears, and he's still helping me to do that. 
And then also, the book of Exodus was the first book I ever taught here at PBC in its entirety. So some of you who were part of the Young Adults Fellowship, and I think there are still a few around in 1996-97 might remember the first book I taught when we started the Young Adults Fellowship was the book of Exodus. It took us a couple years to get through it. So uh, I'm coming full circle in the book of Exodus, and I'm excited to do so. And I'm excited to be back with you. Christian Wyman is a poet, and um, he dealt with a very extreme form of cancer in his 30s that was very fast-growing and very difficult to treat. And he writes this, I have been in and out of treatment, in and out of the hospital. I have had bones die and bowels fail, joints lock in my face and arms and legs so that I could not eat, could not walk. I have filled my body with mingled mouse and human antibodies, cutting-edge small molecules, old-school chemotherapies eating into me like animate acids. I have passed through pain I could never have imagined, pain that seemed to incinerate all my thoughts of God and to leave me sitting there in ashes alone. He had to deal with pain that incinerated all his thoughts of God. And difficult circumstances can do that, can't they? You're dealing with difficult circumstances and you believe in God, but then these difficult circumstances come and sometimes it seems like the circumstances incinerate your thoughts about God. So here we are in Exodus chapter 5, and uh, things are pretty bad in Egypt for the people of God, but things go from bad to worse. In Exodus 5, things go from bad to worse. And sometimes that happens in our lives, right? You think things are pretty bad. You think they can't get worse. They go from bad to worse. So this is in contrast to what we saw last week at the end of Exodus chapter 4. So a little background. You, you, know, you know the story, most of you anyway. But you got, you got Moses who grew up in Egypt. He goes off to the wilderness. He failed back in Egypt. And he spends 40 years in the wilderness. The Lord meets him in the wilderness, in the burning bush, and says, go back to Egypt. I want you to deliver the people of God. I want you to deliver my people, the Israelites, from bondage in Egypt. And so Moses is reluctant, but eventually he goes back, and he goes back, and his brother Aaron goes out to meet him, and and Moses and Aaron come to the elders of Israel and the people of Israel, and uh, Aaron speaks, and the people believe. Not only do the people believe, but they worship. So they've been in bondage for 400 years, and now they are they, they, they hear this word of deliverance, and there's an excitement. Things are looking up. And then we find out they're not in Exodus chapter 5. So let's look at it. Exodus chapter 5, first of all, the first nine verses. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no attention to lying words. Okay, so things are looking up, right? Moses and Aaron, probably high off their encounter with the people, come now to Pharaoh, and they approach Pharaoh and request that he let the people go. And Pharaoh predictably rejects them, dismisses them out of hand. 
And he says to them, who is the Lord that I should let the people go? The Lord, Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, the God of these people. Who, who is he? I don't, I don't know him. Well, Pharaoh's going to find out soon enough who the Lord is as the Lord executes his wonders in Egypt. But for now, he says, who is the Lord? And it doesn't, it doesn't even matter to him who the Lord is. Even if the Lord exists in his mind, it doesn't matter. That, that God is irrelevant. That's the God of the Hebrews. And we have our own gods here in Egypt. And by the way, our gods are more powerful than your gods because we have you under our thumb. And not only that, you know what? I'm a god. In, in this whole Egyptian worldview, I'm a god. So who is the Lord? I don't care. I don't care who the Lord is. So, of course, he dismisses their request out of hand. So Moses and Aaron then take a different approach. Well, they try again. They use some different words, but that doesn't work either. Pharaoh, of course, doesn't care. He's not going to let the people go. He is a tyrant, and tyrants care about only one thing, power, getting more power and holding on to the power that they have. Forget it. Get out of here. In fact, I'm going to make your life more difficult. You think I'm going to let you go? No, I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to make your life actually more difficult. And he accuses Moses and Aaron of filling the heads of the people with a lot of starry-eyed ideas and distracting them from their work. They are his slaves, and they're supposed to work for him. And if they start thinking, having these dreams, entertaining these dreams of deliverance, they're going to be distracted from their work. So no, get back to your work. Not only get back to your work, but I'm going to make things harder for you. So so you'll forget all about this deliverance nonsense. So what he does is he orders them uh, to continue doing the same amount of work, but now uh, regarding the straw, they're going to have to gather their own straw. Now, straw was necessary for bricks to hold their shape, to make them, otherwise that they would fall apart. And now they have to gather their own straw, but still make the same quota, still deliver the same number of bricks. It's an impossible demand. And Pharaoh hopes then that that they'll they'll get rid of this whole idea of deliverance because life is actually getting more difficult. And he accuses them of being idle or lazy. He he says he sees right through this ploy. Really, you're just trying to get out of work, aren't you? Well, let me tell you about work. I'm going to make it more difficult for you. I'm going to lay a heavier burden on you so that you will forget about what he calls lying words or false words. These words of deliverance that Moses and Aaron are speaking of about getting out of Egypt, from Pharaoh's perspective, they are deceitful words. They are lying words. They are false words. And if he makes things more difficult for them, then the people will will realize he hopes that these are just false words. So we have the word of God. And some of the word of God concerns deliverance. God promises to deliver us from evil. In fact, we pray in the Lord's prayer, deliver us from evil. And we know based on other scriptures that that prayer will be answered. Do you realize that? When we pray that prayer, deliver us from evil, we pray with confidence that the Lord is going to answer that prayer. So God is going to deliver us from evil. So what is bothering you right now? What is oppressing you right now? Well, whatever it is, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can have confidence that God is going to deliver you from that one day. Not only that, if I read my scriptures correctly, God is in the process even now of doing so. Do you realize that? Do you realize whatever it is that's bothering you now, whatever oppression you're dealing with, God is even now in the process of delivering you from that, moving things into place, moving people into place, moving players into place. He's doing the same thing with the entire world. For all believers in Jesus Christ, moving everything into place so that he will once and for all deliver us from evil and such things are happening even now. Do you realize that? That should give you hope right now. Whatever you're going through right now, it should give you hope. 
God is in the process of delivering you and, in fact, delivering the whole world. Amen. But what does Pharaoh say? Pay no regard to lying words. Have you ever felt as if these are false words? That maybe that doesn't kind of match up with reality. It doesn't kind of match up with my current experience. Well, there's an evil one out there who wants you to believe exactly that. Who wants you to believe that this is all a bunch of nonsense. And there are forces at play in our world that want you to believe that this is all a bunch of nonsense. You're wasting time here. You're paying attention. You're giving regard to lying words. The promises of deliverance from evil, lying, deceitful, false words. Now, difficult circumstances can make it seem as if God's promises concerning deliverance are invalid, right? Sometimes we have to wrestle through these things. Life in the Silicon Valley sometimes can make you feel as if the word of God, the promises of God, the promises of deliverance are invalid. Life, the workplace here, sometimes, because of the burdens placed on you, because of the challenges here, can sometimes make you feel that the promises of God, the word of God, the promises of God concerning deliverance are invalid. So we have to deal with these kinds of things, don't we? Difficult circumstances can incinerate thoughts about God, as they did for the poet Christian Wyman. But let me ask you a question. Do difficult circumstances make the promises of God concerning deliverance any less true? Let me ask the question again, and you get to answer the question. Do difficult circumstances make the promises of God concerning deliverance any less true? And the church answers, no. No. The word of God is true. Let everything else be false. This is true. What did we just sing? Your promise still Stands. Great is your faithfulness. Your faithfulness. One of the things I did on sabbatical is I went to different churches, most of them in the area here, and I went mostly to smaller churches, and I was very encouraged, by the way. Great pastors, great churches, great sermons. Uh, it was great to worship with other folks, and so you should be encouraged too. We're not alone here uh, on the peninsula and in the South Bay. But uh, one of the things I really wanted to do is I wanted to go back to the church where I came to Christ in Los Altos. It's the Union Presbyterian Church of Los Altos. And uh, I grew up here in Mountain View, and some friends invited me to this youth group at this church 49 years ago, right about this time, 1973. So 49 years ago, I I, I go to this church. I'm I'm driving with these guys. I've told this story before, but for this story to make sense, i got to tell it again. And... um, So this is the church that I decided to worship again at 49 years later. But 49 years ago, I walk into this room with these guys who took me to this youth group. And we go into Landel's room. I remember the room. And we sat down, about 30 of us, kids, cross-legged on the floor. The youth pastor was sitting in front of us, also cross-legged on the floor. He's got a Bible in his hand. And he says, open to Ephesians. And I thought to myself, what? (laughs) Ephesians? I didn't know what Ephesians was. And I saw other kids with Bibles, and they seemed to be fumbling around. Oh, Ephesians must be in the Bible. And they, I knew there was an Old Testament and a New Testament. This was kind of toward the back. Oh, this must be, in the New, must be in the New Testament. And there was this girl sitting cross-legged on the floor next to me, and she noted, noted my plight. I didn't have a Bible. I didn't know what was going on. She takes a Bible. She opens up to Ephesians, and she hands me a Bible, and then we study the book of Ephesians. And that was my introduction to the word of God. That was the first Bible study I ever attended. That was my introduction to Jesus. 
And about three months later, I came to Christ. The name, of, the name of the youth pastor, by the way, I've mentioned his name before, was Conrad Hopkins. He grew up here at Peninsula Bible Church, and his father was an elder here way back in the 1950s. So he just did a verse-by-verse Bible study of Ephesians. So I go back to this church 49 years later, and I, just, I worship with these people, and there's only one person left from my days in the youth group there, a woman by the name of Carol. And she was there on this particular Sunday. And so afterwards, she gave me a tour of the church along with her husband, Mario. And we walked into Landel's room again. And this felt felt like a holy place to me. So I'm walking into Landel's room. And I'm standing there in Landel's room where I I attended my first Bible study 49 years ago. And I could picture the scene. I could picture Conrad saying, open to Ephesians. I could picture all these other kids around me. Also opening to Ephesians. I could picture the girl next to me reaching over to me and handing me a Bible and opening to Ephesians. But I didn't have to imagine what she looked like today because she was standing right next to me. It was Carol. It was Carol who handed me that Bible 49 years ago. She's still there, faithfully worshiping the Lord, gave me the tour. We walked into Landel's room together. And there she was. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness, O God. Your faithfulness. He is working, even now, to bring about our deliverance in unseen ways, in ways that we can't see, in ways that we have no way of knowing, What's happening now? But rest assured and trust in God. He's working even now. What do we sing? Even though I don't see it, you're working. So if the evil one comes to us and the world comes to us and all these forces come to us and say, pay no attention to lying words, what do we do? We do the opposite. We get into the word. We absorb the word. Absorb the word. Get it into your system. This is true. Let everything else be false. This is true. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. He also says this in 2 Corinthians 1.10. He, that being God, delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So when someone comes to me with a troublesome issue, and I don't know the person really well, and I don't know the issue really well, what I try to do for the first 30 minutes or so, or maybe longer, or maybe less, is I try just to listen. And I ask questions, and I'm trying to understand what the story is. But as I'm listening, I'm trying also to listen to the Spirit to try to understand what from the scriptures can help this individual today. And usually by the end of our time together, I've got some scriptures for them to think about. And I take a three-by-five card and I write down the references and I said, here, take this. Read through these verses multiple times. Pray through these verses. Meditate on these verses. This is true. What you're going through right now might make you think that this stuff isn't true, but this is true. The Spirit will help you assimilate these words into your life. Get them into your system. The Spirit breathes out these words. The Spirit is with the word. And then the Spirit helps us to assimilate the word. Back to the book of Exodus. So the people of Israel are unable to meet the new, to, to, to meet the quota and with their additional burdens. And the foremen of Israel pay the price. Look at verse 14, chapter 5, verse 14. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you done 
all your task of making bricks to, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? So what happens? The foremen get beaten up. They get beaten and they get berated because the people aren't doing what Pharaoh expects them to do. So remember, Exodus 4, things were looking up. Now things fall apart. Sometimes, just when it seems as if things are looking up, they fall apart. So the foremen go in of Israel, the foremen go in and they complain to Pharaoh. Pharaoh kicks him out. Of course, I'm not going to do anything about this. He's really happy with what's going on here. The people, uh, people are probably forgetting all about this deliverance nonsense. Things are harder. And so then the foremen come out and they encounter Moses and Aaron. And we see this in verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So the foreman, they find someone to blame. They find two people to blame, Moses and Aaron. If you had never approached Pharaoh in the first place, Pharaoh wouldn't have cracked down on us. It is your fault. We lay the blame at your feet. You led us into this. You deceived us, filling us with all these ideas of deliverance. And where's the deliverance? Things are actually getting harder. They blame Moses and Aaron. It is a common human response to human problems, is it not, to find someone to blame. It's really uncanny, I find, in my own experience, when something's wrong, there is this initial thing Okay, who's to blame for this? <laughs> Who's, whose fault is this? And, and, and usually the first response is, well, it can't be my fault. <laughs> it's somebody else's fault. And uh, so that's a common human response. Now, there are some politicians in our world who make a living doing this. They tell you who to blame. It's the fault of the Republicans. It's the fault of the Democrats. It's the fault of the immigrants. It's the fault of the elites. You've got to find somebody to blame and vote for me, by the way, because it's not your fault and I'm going to fix it. C.S. Lewis wrote this very interesting sort of science fiction novel called The Great Divorce. And in it, there's this fanciful depiction of hell. It's not based on the Bible, but it's based on his imagination. But I think it speaks a truth. He's taking the Bible and then speaking a truth based on it and concocting this other world. So in the great divorce in hell, if you're in hell, you can live anywhere you want. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Think about that. Here I am. I can live anywhere I want. Doesn't cost you anything either. Costs you a lot to live here. I want to live in the peninsula. Yeah, well, you've got to pay... $4 million for a house. No, I don't want to live there. Well, I got to live. Ah, you know. But you can live anywhere you want. The problem is people learn pretty quickly in hell that they don't like each other. They have these little problems, which turn into bigger problems. And so you can live anywhere you want. Well, I'm going to move away from this person. People live hundreds and thousands and millions of miles away from each other because they can't stand each other. And these two individuals get this idea one day, hey, let's go visit Napoleon. Where does Napoleon live? So they set out on the journey to go find Napoleon. It takes them only 15,000 years to get there. Finally, they find Napoleon's house. It's this big, beautiful, gorgeous house that Napoleon has built. And they peer in the, into the window to see if they can see Napoleon. And sure enough, there is Napoleon. He is walking back and forth and back and forth, and back, and forth, muttering to himself, and he's saying it was Salt's fault. It was Ney's fault. It was Josephine's fault. It was the fault of the Russians. It was the fault of the English. And the two people stood at the window and watched him do this for an entire year. Now, I don't know if that has anything to do with hell or not. 
but they have an idea that you're kind of going to be able to do what you want, and what you want is not really what you need. And if you really, really want to blame people, you can do that forever. But you can't stop doing this. So, Moses and Aaron get blamed. So how does Moses respond to this? Final two verses, verses of our chapter. Verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So <laughs> Moses takes all of what he's experienced and he brings it to the Lord and he questions the Lord. He asks him two why questions. Why have you brought evil to this people? It's Pharaoh who's done it, but he sees the Lord is behind it all somehow. And why did you ever send me? Why did you ever send me? Now, he, when he came back, he knew it was going to be difficult. The Lord told him it's going to be hard. Pharaoh is going to be resistant. But also, I'm going to show you my wonders and Pharaoh's going to let you go. And he must be wondering at this point, well, yeah, it's kind of hard, but where are your wonders, Lord? Where are your wonders? We're still stuck here. Things are getting worse. The people are angry with me. And he says this, ever since I have spoken in your name, you have not even delivered these people a little bit. I'm not seeing any signs of deliverance. And think about this. What is Moses' biggest problem? Well, if you're familiar with the story, you know that when he was in the wilderness and the Lord met him, he was resistant to going back to Egypt. And at the end, he says, you know what? I really don't have what this takes, Lord, because why? I can't speak very well. The one thing that is necessary for this thing that you are calling me to is that I be able to speak well. I have to be able to speak to the people to get them to believe me. I have to speak to Pharaoh to get him to believe me. And I can't speak well. And now what does he say? Ever since I have spoken in your name, nothing has happened. I'm speaking. See, Lord, I'm speaking. I don't have good speaking ability. Nothing is happening. I knew it. You feel that way. Oh, God's called me to something. I don't have what it takes. It's actually not a bad place to be. Who made man's mouth? You know, back, back in the wilderness, when he was talking to the Lord and the Lord was talking to him, he said, hey, you know, even since we've been talking, I've been noticing I'm not getting any better at this speaking thing. <laughs> you know, couldn't you just make me my mouth better right now in this encounter? And then I'm going to go and I'm going to blow them away with my words? No, the Lord didn't do that. And sure enough, he goes back. He speaks. Nothing happens. So I, there were, you know, there was a time or two in my life when I, I left journalism for pastoral training and ministry, and I said something along the lines of, why did you ever send me? And I said, uh, you know, did I ever, did I even hear you right in the first place? And you've probably felt that way. <laughs> did, did, I, did I get, how did I end up here? Did I get that right? Was, I thought I was following the Lord, but I'm, in, I'm here and it's not, it's not going well. I wonder if Moses ever wondered. You know that, that burning bush experience? Uh, did, I, did I hear God right there? You know, I only heard it once. I didn't, I, didn't have, I didn't have it on tape. You know, did, did I hear that right? Or was that all a dream? I mean, it's not every day you get a burning bush and the Lord speaks out of a burning bush. Was it all a dream? Did I get that right? But here's what Moses doesn't do. He doesn't run. 40 years ago, when he struck down the Egyptian... He thought, according to the book of Acts, that God was bringing about deliverance right then and there. He faltered, he failed, and he ran 40 years in the wilderness. The Lord finally meets him in the wilderness 40 years later, says, I want you to go back, deliver my people. And what does he do? He asks, he asks 
to be excused. Now, he doesn't run. He doesn't ask to be excused. Instead, he stays present with the Lord. He asks these hard questions. He can do that. But he stays present with the Lord. Whatever you're going through, stay present with the Lord. Ask him your hard questions. Go ahead. That's part of staying present with the Lord. Don't run. Don't ask to be excused. Instead, stay present with the Lord. And if you're inclined to blame others for your problems, do that maybe for a little bit, but then give that up and turn to the Lord. Stay present with him. Christian Wyman, the poet, whose thoughts concerning God were virtually incinerated, also writes this. I have come back for now even hungrier for God, for Christ, for all the difficult bliss of this life I have been given. What an expression. I've come back hungrier forever, hungrier than ever for God, for Christ, and for the difficult bliss of this life. Do you know that's what what it is? It's difficult, yes. But if Jesus is in the middle of it, and he is for those of you who believe in him, there's bliss in there. It's difficult bliss. Are you hungry for that? It's possible. Whatever you're going through, stay present with the Lord. Wyman also writes this, but there is great weariness too, and fear, and fury. It is possible to have all of that weariness, fear, fury, and still stay present with the Lord. Exodus 5, Absorb the word and stay present with the Lord. And absorbing the word will help you to stay present with the Lord. And ask your questions. Moses asked these two why questions. Now, in the very next verse, Exodus chapter 6, 1, the Lord responds to Moses, but he doesn't answer Moses' questions. Instead, he answers Moses in a way that renders Moses' questions irrelevant. So the answers to your questions, if answers there be, will come in time. So what does the Lord say to Moses that renders Moses' questions irrelevant? Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. Read it for yourself and come back next week. The band may come up and join us up here and lead us in worship again. And as they do, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, it's great to be uh, with your people again. I've been with your people throughout as going to different churches, but this is the place where near as I can tell, (laughs) you have called me. And uh, so here I am, feeling in many ways weak and inadequate and trusting in your power. Thanks for all these people here. Lord, I believe that you have led them here this day to be part of us today. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them to absorb the word and to stay present with you. We believe, Lord, that even when we don't see it, you're working. We believe. And insofar as we don't believe, help us as we sing this song. In Jesus' name, amen. Scott Grant, teaching pastor of Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website, to Church of the Week at SalemSF.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to Church of the Week at SalemSF.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.